And uh, so he had uh, set up, as you read in these passages, uh, the defenses around the city. And uh, what's described there, uh, some of your Bibles use the word engines that were built. Uh, and obviously there were military engines that were built to do specific things. And so it appears that these uh, military engines that were built were built to hurl stones and arrows. Uh, they were mechanical by nature. And this is the first written uh, mention of artillery that you find in, in uh, the written word. So kind of interesting. I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm talking about anywhere. Because uh, a lot of people had uh, originally, it was thought that perhaps the Romans had invented uh, these type machines, or the Greeks had somehow invented these types of machines, but it appears instead that they came from Syria or Palestine. And this is the first real mention of any use of artillery in any kind of warfare. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. Because the way it's described is that really smart people figured it out and they're the ones that set it up. And so these really smart people that figured it out were the ones that were setting it up here. And so what had happened was that uh, King Isaiah, his name had spread from far and wide. I mean, he was the guy. You think about innovations and you think about uh, especially something like this that affects warfare. Uh, it made any kind of a siege or any kind of penetration into that city to be almost impossible. And so word spread about that, and word spread about these machines, these engines that were being used to uh, hurl arrows and to hurl rocks and things like that, and that word spread throughout the whole known world. I mean, he became, Uzziah became somebody that was world famous. I mean, you've heard of Syracuse famous, right? I mean, that's, you know, like Hyde's Hot Dogs or something. I mean, this is world famous. And so his name was spread uh, far and wide, and there was a certain fear that was uh, over people to attack or to come against him. And so he had a certain intimidation factor. But the idea is that he was famous. He's famous. And, and so describing those engines, again, I mean, uh, bulwarks or, or towers, catapults, ballistas, uh, those were some of the names uh, of some of the machines as they would be known through uh, the Romans. Uh, the Romans would use these machines to break down the cities of the Greeks and of others. And so this would come many, many, many hundreds of years later that the Romans would be using these very machines that are being described here in Second Chronicles 26. And so Uzziah was, and the Bible uses this phrase, the only place this phrase is used, Uzziah was marvelous, marvelously helped. And that's the only place it's ever used. And so he was marvelously helped in what he was doing. He was helped in miraculous ways. And that's what that means, marvelously. And so there were uh, miraculous things that were sent Uzziah's way to help him, and it led to his fame, and it led to people around the world, at least the known world of this time and this place, 
of knowing who he was and knowing his name and fearing him. And interestingly, it describes the circumstance under which this happened. And the circumstance under which this happened where it talks about Uzziah being helped in miraculous or marvelous ways is that as long as he was seeking the Lord. And, and it describes what happens and when this miraculous help stops. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes, but understand that Uzziah had been seeking God. He had been really after, he had been zealous for God, zealous for what God had for him, zealous for what God had for the nation, zealous to, to really follow after what God had spoken and what God was saying, zealous for the people to follow after what God was saying and what God was doing. And so, he had been not only seeking the Lord, but he had been mindful of his relationship with God. And as long as he was seeking God and he was mindful of his relationship with God, then he prospered. And that was what was going on. He was prospering. I mean, you think about he had army, he had armies, he had armor, he had fortresses, he had uh, these uh, siege work and these defensive machines. Engines that had been built by really, really smart people that had shared that knowledge. And so all this was taking place. And really, Uzziah is part of that. Now, and I want you to think about this for a second. Uzziah isn't the one that they're saying was really smart, right? He, he's the king, but it's other smart people, other inventors that are inventing things and that are giving him the opportunity to use those things. But it's his name that's being spread. His role in that, though is to be a good king. And in order to be a good king in that day, and in the particular situation that they were in, was that in order to be a good king for Uzziah to be who he was supposed to be, he needed to seek God. And he needed to be mindful of his relationship with God because Israel was a theocracy. We've talked about this before. We're used to governmental forms like democracy or a democratic republic, or we're used to governmental forms that would be a bit different than what this would look like. Well, Israel was a theocracy. In other words, theoretically, God was the ruler of Israel. And the king was an intermediary between God and the people of Israel. And so it was his job, it was his role, it was his call, it was the expectation of the people that he would be seeking after God. Seeking after God for what? For direction? Seeking after God for... His leadership, seeking after God for His will, seeking after God for what He had for the people, what He had for the nation. That was the expectation. That's what He was supposed to do, and that's what He did. And so as long as He was mindful to do that, as long as He was mindful of His relationship with God, mindful of the relationship that He had with God, the people, and all the rest of that, then the Bible talks about Him prospering, being successful at what He was doing. So what can we learn from that? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we're not ruling a nation. We're not kings or queens in, in the sense that he was. Uh, and, and we're not really part of theocracy. We live, physically live in a democracy, a democratic republic, actually. And so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting that there's still lessons to be learned, though, from Uzziah. Because part of the, the principle that we understand from the story is that God operates in certain ways. God has certain expectations of people. God looks at, at, at attitudes. He looks at the heart. He looks at where we're at. And there's certain things that 
He prospers in our life. Uh, in fact, if you think about prosperity, prosperity is God's gift. And and really, the only time, uh, only whom God prospers, prospers. And it's the way it is. And that was part of the the realization that Solomon had in Ecclesiastes that you see people that are not people that Solomon would have judged to be righteous, people that Solomon wouldn't have judged to be good people or anything else, but they're still being prospered. And Solomon realized that they were being prospered because God is the one who prospers. And so regardless of whatever Solomon's judgment was of those people, in his mind what he kept seeing in Ecclesiastes is like, well, you've got the righteous people, and they could be poor as dirt, and you have the prosperous people, and they could be evil as anything. At least that's what was in his mind. And he's like, well, what good does it do? But, but the, the thing I want you to understand about, without getting into a philosophical debate about that, the thing I really want you to understand about that is that Solomon recognized that God is the one who prospers. He prospers people. And it's who he chooses, it's who he... He says, it's who he released that prosperity on. They're the ones that's God's gift. Uzziah was in a position where if he was going to prosper, it was going to be because he had the right heart attitude and he had the right motivation and he had the right, uh, he had the right movement in his life toward God. He was the king. He was the king in a theocracy. And so as he sought God, as he, he spent time in his relationship, he valued that and he kept it in mind. His relationship with God, he saw prosperity during his reign. So, the interesting part of this, as Tim was reading, I, I forget, he said something else, but God prospered Uzziah until a certain point. And Tim, I don't know, do you still have that open there? Yeah. What was the point that he prospered him till? Powerful. Okay, some of your Bibles say strong. And so there was the point where Uzziah became strong or powerful, and that's the point that God was prospering him. That was the, the point that God was blessing him. That was the point where God was causing all of these things to open up before him, causing all of these things to happen in his life. I mean, he's famous, he's powerful. Other rulers, other nations are fearing him. I mean, all of these things are taking place. And it goes and goes and goes up until... And these are a lot of years. I mean, Uzziah reigned for, I think, about 50 years, 51 years. And so all the way up until this point, this point right here, God was prospering him. God was seeing to it that he had what he needed. Smart, Really smart people were making really smart things. And Uzziah was benefiting from it. And those really smart people were blessing him and blessing the nation of Israel and blessing Jerusalem and blessing what was going on. And so, these are all the things that were taking place until the point that he became strong or he became powerful. Now, in the New Testament sense, we see, we get an understanding of why that makes sense. Uh, in our minds, in human minds, well... If you're prospered by God, you have armies, you have artillery, you have armor, you have horses, you have chariots, you have all of these things. All of those things are designed for nations to become powerful. 
and kings to become powerful. So it would only make sense to us that he would become stronger, he would become powerful. Here's the issue. The real issue isn't what he had, what he had amassed. Those were all the blessings of God. The real issue wasn't what he had in the armory. God had prospered him. God had brought prosperity into his life. It wasn't all of the interesting engines and and all of the interesting uh, artillery that he had that were being invented and being used to protect his city because, I mean, all of those things were just the blessing and the prosperity of God. Something happened in the heart of Uzziah. And that was the turning point. There was nothing that God was providing that that God all of a sudden realized, like, oh, I gave him a little too much, he's strong, so I'm going to cut it off. That wasn't it. That's not what you're reading here. What you're reading here is that prosperity was going to continue. And that God's blessing was going to continue. And all these things, we have no reason to believe it wouldn't. But something happened in the heart of Uzziah that caused the end of the prosperity. It brought it to a screeching halt. And so in the New Testament, you see this, and the Apostle Paul was teaching on this in 2 Corinthians, where he was talking about how God had given him a thorn in his flesh that was a messenger of Satan to him. And I thought that was kind of interesting because we think of the Apostle Paul in certain ways. I think we all do. If you've read any of the New Testament, he wrote half the New Testament or more. He's a main character, a main figure in the book of Acts. He is the late arriving apostle. He was the persecutor of the church. He was someone that was sent to the Gentiles, of which we have all benefited from his ministry thousands of years later, but we've benefited from his ministry. And so Paul is somebody that we look at in, in the faith, somebody that we look at in the history of the church as being somewhat of a hero of the church. And I'm not here to dispute that. He is. I mean, he faced hardship. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was left for dead. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked. He was at sea for one day, two days, most of a third day. I mean, the guy faced the hardships. He was imprisoned. He was threatened. He was let down uh, more than once in a bucket outside of the wall to escape, run for his life. He was somebody that not only spoke about sacrifice, not only spoke about what it meant to serve God, but he lived it out. In all of its hardships and in all of the challenges that he had to face, he was living it out. And so I'm not disputing any of that. I'm not disputing anything about him being a champion of the faith. Because he is. He is. Uh, he is exactly what he is. And yet, if you read in 2 Corinthians, and there's a certain honesty that's going on here, Paul was given a messenger from Satan, but it was a messenger that God allowed for, and God put in and allowed to continue in his life. A thorn in his flesh. There was something wrong with him. Do we, know, we don't know what that was. We don't have the answer to that. Like, you know, people guess. They say, oh, this, that. Well, they don't know. All they know is there's something wrong with him. And it was something that was annoying, painful, 
something that he would notice quite a bit. And he asked God to take it away from him, and God's response was, you remember his response? My grace is sufficient for you. Right, so there's a reminder that's going on there. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, take this away. No. No. I'm going to leave that thorn in your flesh. I'm going to leave that messenger of Satan in your flesh. Because my grace is sufficient for you. And he's giving him a reminder, isn't he? Through that thorn, he's giving a reminder through that, whatever that thing that was going on, that physical problem that he had, he was giving him a reminder that God's grace is sufficient. You know what he said second? What else did he say after that? Yeah, it says, for my power is made perfect. I love that. It's complete. My power is perfected. It's complete. It's whole in your weakness. Yeah. So, in, in the New Testament sense, you see that there's a heart of God there. There's a heart of God in the person, and we see in his dealing with the person of Paul, the Apostle. That the heart of God is being revealed through the thorn that's in Paul's flesh. That, you know, to be honest with you, in certain circles, you know, if somebody was sick today and they weren't being healed, there would, there would be a line of Christians out there accusing them of having sin in their life because God heals everything. When the fact of the matter is that Paul asked him to heal it and he just said no. And he taught him a lesson and he put him in a better position by saying no and by not healing him and for allowing that thorn in the flesh to continue because his power was being perfected through it. Now, I know that's not simple enough to just say, oh, well, God heals everybody and everything. I know that's simpler. I know it's simple to say, you know, well then, you know, if you, if you don't get healed, then you must have not have enough faith and you must have sin in your life. That's simpler. It's just not accurate. That's easier for us to understand. It's just not necessarily true. It could be true. It could be. But it's not necessarily true. That's why, you know, drawing down rules and regulations and trying to, to, to put God in those kind of boxes and say God always does this or God always says that or God always is going to do this in that way or however it is that we think He's going to do. When we do that, trying to simplify things in our minds, we're normally deficient. Or, old-fashioned, just plain old wrong. It's just not enough. It's not enough to, to throw God into a box if He's going to be God of the universe. God of the universe does not rule from a box that you create in your mind. God of the universe does not rule from a fence that you built around Him in your mind. The God of the universe doesn't rule from a fence even that a thousand theologians have built in all of their learned knowledge. He doesn't rule from inside that fence. God of the universe rules wherever He feels like it. 
right? And it's not inside anything that we've ever created. Never. So, so when we look at Paul, and, and this is the context I want you to stay in, when you look at Paul, we're taught a lesson about something about the character of God. We're taught a lesson about something about how God works, how he sees things. And that is, he would rather Paul be afflicted. Now follow me here. He'd rather Paul be afflicted that his power would be perfected in him and that his grace would be sufficient. He would rather Paul be afflicted than to healing. No fair, no hair? I don't know. I mean, that could be. But it's just the way it works. That ain't up to me. And so, going back to King Uzziah. Now, and, and I know he's Old Testament and stuff, but follow along. There's a principle here, right? God the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know the Bible says that? How it says that? All right. There's a principle, and, and when we learn off principle, those are things that we can apply across situations. We can apply across circumstances. We can apply to things that are going on around us. When people come to us with questions, sometimes if we understand something about God, and oh, he, he works this way. Well, maybe that's what He's doing, or maybe that's what He's saying. I don't know. But it puts us in a better position instead of getting all upset or, or it puts us in a getting all mad about the wrong stuff. It puts us in a better position, I believe, to have a lot more grace, a lot more love, and a lot more patience for the God who loves us. I was listening to, uh, I've been listening through or reading through the Bible, and I've been using the message version. Have you ever read the message? You know, it's just kind of plain English or worse. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But I, I've, I've used a, a lot of, if I go through the Bible every year, I, use, I try to use a different version. I, and I do every other year, I think, usually English Standard or one of the no, standard versions. But every other year, I usually go through with one of the other type versions, uh, more of a paraphrase, more of a uh, kind of slicked up version for people that can understand it or whatever. And uh, there's been some interesting moments that I've been reading it or been listening to it where there's some familiar passages to me that uh, the paraphrase for it is kind of interesting. There was, uh, But today I was listening and there, it goes through Proverbs. This is the second time through Proverbs in the particular plan that I'm going through. And in the second time through Proverbs, I'm hearing things I didn't hear the first time. And there was a passage, and all it said was this, and I, I'm like 90% sure it was Proverbs, and I, I can look it up later probably, but here's what it said. It's like, things go wrong in our life because of our stupidity. <laughs> now, and here's the, here's the second part, though, it's great. Then why does God get the blame? That's all it said. I mean, it was plain English, right? But it just struck me. It's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> How many things go wrong in our life because of our stupidity? Lots. Then why does God get the blame for that? For making us stupid? I mean, I don't know. How does He get the blame? So, so it's just kind of interesting that, that God works in certain ways. He, he works in, in certain principles. So, now understand it this way then. 
Uzziah is getting blessed, he's getting blessed, he's prospering, he's prospering, he's prospering, and then the turning point of that is when he became strong. If God's strength is made perfect in us through weakness, then tell me if it doesn't make sense that the blessing and prosperity of God ended when Uzziah became strong. There was no more perfection of God's grace in him. No more perfection of God's strength in him. He was strong. He was strong. And so that became a, a barrier. You see, as long as, like I said before, Uzziah, he was seeking the Lord, and he was sticking with it, he was staying with it. In other words, he was doing his duty, he was going about things. There was prosperity. But when he forsook God, in other words, he became strong, things go cross. That's when things go cross. And that's exactly what happened. Because, to put it in other words, when he became strong in his own mind, what do we call that? It's pride. Right. He became strong in his own mind. Really, probably the circumstance didn't change, right? He was still the king, he still had armies, he still had a fortress, he still had towers, he still had machines, he still had artillery, he still had horses, he still had chariots, he still he had all of those things that he had before, but something in him changed. And that's really the point I'm trying to make, is something in his mind changed, and when he became strong or mighty or whatever your Bible says, in his own mind we call that pride. And that's what happened. That's what happened. He became prideful and that blinded him. Because that's what pride does. It blinds you. It blinds me. And we can't see things for as they are. And pride leads to, and I've talked about this before, pride is the sin of the devil. Pride leads to every other vice in our life. It just leads to it. And that is the original sin of the devil was pride. I mean, Satan, Lucifer, he had, according to our understanding of the Scriptures, he had whatever he pretty much wanted. He he was a powerful angel in heaven. He was next to God himself. I mean, we have every reason, every reason to believe that he had everything that he could ever want. And yet there was one day where something changed in him. It wasn't his circumstance that changed. It wasn't his position that changed. It wasn't his place by God that changed. It wasn't his function in heaven that changed. It wasn't anything else that changed. It was something in him that changed where he became strong. He became prideful. He's like, well, I will ascend and I will take God's place. And that was his fall. So that pride, and that is pride, leads to every other vice. That was the original, original Lucifer sin. And so, it is a common, everyday sin, problem, issue, concern in each of our lives. And it leads to other problems 
in each of our lives. As long as Josiah served as a viceroy of the divine king, he prospered, right? I mean, he, once he, when he realized who he was, like, well, he's the king, I'm his viceroy, I'm the king of Judah, I'm the king of the nation. And as long as he kept that place in his heart and his mind, he, he was being prospered. He was prospering. You know, he understood his point. He understood his place. He's the go-between. And that's all right. I mean, think about it. It's like prosper, world famous, safe, secure, more than you need. That's a good place to be, right? Well, something happened in his mind, though. What happened in his mind? You know. You know. I know. We all know what happened in his mind. And so he became strong, prideful, and things started to go bad. Somebody look at, and we're going to see this other places. Somebody look at John, Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 30. Alright, that's John the Baptist. And the idea here is that there was a transition that was about to take place. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last one. And there he stood. And there were some of the Pharisees, there were some of the Sadducees, some of the religious leaders that came to John, were talking to him. They saw what John was doing. John was working. He was... He was functioning as that Old Testament prophet. He was calling people to repentance. He was calling people into a place of God. He was baptizing people. People were coming out of the city to be baptized by him. They were coming out of the towns to, to hear what he had to say. God was using him. God was speaking through him. God was doing some just some great stuff through John the Baptist. And so these, these people, they came to him and they said, well... You know, are you the one? Now, think about it. That was his chance, wasn't it? Yes, I am. Right? Yes. No, but he wasn't. You see, he wasn't. He was the go-between. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets leading to the Messiah. He was the last of the prophets that they were used to, last of the type of ministry, an Old Testament prophetic ministry that they had been used to, that they had seen, and they'd been waiting for him. They'd been waiting for that Old Testament type prophet to come along and to call the people to repentance, to call the people into a better relationship with God, to call the people into that baptism experience, to that cleansing experience, to that dedication experience. They've been waiting on him. And he was doing everything they expected him to do. And so they came to him and they said, are you, you know, are you the one? But he, he said no. You see, he didn't lose track of who he was. He didn't lose track of, of, of what, he didn't become strong. He just remained that, that go-between. 
He remained that one that was in between the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophet and the Messiah. He just was who he was. It was okay. He remained weak and humble. And only who he was. Because change was coming. Transition was coming. Life was coming. And it was on him, it was on him to usher in and to see that moment and to see that time of change and transition and life. That was his job. But he wasn't going to do that from a place of pride. He wasn't going to do that from a place where he was strong in and of himself. He was going to do that from a place of being led of the Spirit. Being empowered of the Spirit. The Spirit speaking through him. That's where that change was going to be ushered in from. That's what needed to be. And so you see this moment in the life of John the Baptist that Uzziah failed at. Who knows what God could have done through Uzziah? I don't know. I have any idea. It's unknown where that could have gone or what that could have been. I mean, Uzziah could have gone down as one of the greatest of all the kings. But at some moment in his life and at some point in his life, he couldn't just be the go-between anymore. He had to be strong. He had to be prideful. A moment that John the Baptist was able to resist. What about Jesus? Okay, uh, see the same principle. Somebody look at uh, Luke twenty two forty two. Okay, Jesus, he's in a moment of decision. Garden of Gethsemane. He's at that moment of decision where he's about to go to the cross. They're coming to get him. They're going to come arrest him. About to be betrayed by a kiss. And there he is. He's, he's in the midst of it all and he's looking at it and he's saying that there's going to be pain and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be all these things that are going to take place. Nobody in their right mind, thinks to themselves, that looks good. Because it doesn't. That looks horrifying. And yet, that would be a moment, a transition, a six-hour frame where he hung on that cross that was going to change history forever. There would be a fulfillment of what had been planned since before the world was even formed that was about to take place. It was that moment of change. It was that moment of transition. It was that moment of life. And what's going to see it in? Is Jesus knowing that He's the go-between. He's the mediator between man and God and being willing to be the mediator. He's willing to serve willing to do his part, 
willing to allow for what was about to happen to happen, he didn't become strong. But didn't he say, I could call down angels from heaven and, and I could be delivered right now. Right? He could have. He could have become strong, but what would we have lost if he did? Salvation? Relationship with God? Forgiveness? Cleansing? Wholeness? Healing? Life? Think about all the things we would have lost if he just didn't or couldn't be satisfied as the go-between, as the mediator. And so he made a decision. He, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. No pride rose up in him. There was no pride that rose up in him. There, there, was, there was no decision to be strong that rose up in him. Not my will. The will was in him, right? To be delivered from all that. Sure. Human. He's human. Not my will. Yours be done. I'm not going to rise up and become strong. I'm not going to rise up and become prideful. I'm going to see this happen. This is the will of God. I want to see it happen. The will of the Father from the foundation of the world is about to take place. And I'm going to do my part. Now you think about our role. Because you look at Jesus. And Jesus, He talks about all the things He gives us. Say, well, I'm going to give you authority to trample upon snakes and scorpions. I'm going to give whoever sins you retain, they retain. Whoever sins you remit, they're remitted to them. I'm going to send you out with authority. And you can cast out devils. And, and you can lay your hands on the sick and they shall recover. I'm going to send you out to teach all nations and make disciples. And you're going to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're going to call you... You, you are called to be my ambassadors. As though God were speaking Himself through you, be reconciled to God. You see, we're the in-betweens. Just like they all were. We have a different role. I mean, we're not the in-betweens because we're the, the king of the world or something. We're the in-betweens of, of Jesus to a lost and dying world. We're the in-betweens of Jesus to a people that are sick and are hungry and are dying. We're the in-betweens that have hope and joy and we have an offer of salvation for people. We're the in-betweens. And as long as we're willing to be the in-betweens, as long as we're willing to do our job, as long as we're willing to go about what God's called us to do and not be strong, but just be who we are, and to allow that weakness to remain in us and not become prideful as long as we're willing to be used in the roles that God's called us to, then we see some pretty powerful stuff happening. That's what we see. But if we rise up in strength, then God's not strong through us anymore. If we rise up in pride, we become ineffective for what God's called us to. And so we're at this moment in our life all the time where we're going to make a decision. Say, well, am I going to rise up in strength? Well, sure we could. But then His strength isn't being perfected through us. Are we going to rise up in pride? Well, we could. But God opposes the proud. 
You're not going to do a lot of good work for the kingdom with God opposing you or me. And so we're at these moments in our life where we've got to make the decisions like, well, alright, I need to just, I don't need to be strong. He's strong. His grace is sufficient for me. And not rise up in pride, but just go about the work that God's called us to do. But there's something about what happened to Uzziah that is instructive to us. A practical way. Because I want you to look at his life, and it's this, that, that Uzziah decided, and, and there was a point of tragedy in his life, he thought he could modify God's command. Now listen to me, because this is something we do. This isn't theoretical, this is something we do. Uzziah believed that he could modify God's command. And so he did it. Uzziah believed that he could decide how God should be worshipped. And so he did it. Now those are two points of instruction I want you to hear. Because those are two common lies of the devil in our life. The first lie of the devil is, is that did God really say? That's the first ever lie of the devil, did God really say? And that's the continual lie of the devil in God's people's lives, is did God really say? When God tells you something, why don't you just write it down? I'm serious. Why don't you just write down what He says? So you don't go back ten minutes later, half an hour later, two days later, a week later, two weeks later... Did God really say that? Well, that's the first and best lie the devil has. I'm telling you right now. He used it in the Garden of Eden and it worked good. Adam and Eve, man, they talked to God face to face. God told them face to face. And He still used it on them. Did God really say? Yeah. Okay. We're all vulnerable to that. Why sometimes... Good to have a tape, good to write it down, good to have some kind of digital version of it. Because that's a point of tragedy when we begin to modify God's command. That is a point of tragedy for us. The second thing about deciding how to worship. Um, yeah. I'm not going to say too much about that. All I'm going to say is this, is that when what other people think of us it becomes more important than how we than us worshiping God for real in our heart and our mind, our life, our body. We are a point of tragedy in our life. We're a point of tragedy. And both of these points were points of tragedy for Uzziah. And so I only share those two because they're two that are mentioned right here that are instructive to us. Because they're two things that worrying about what people are thinking or the other one, or did God really say, those are two things that we all fight. Those are two things that we're all fighting. We're all, you know, really coming against all the time in our hearts and our minds. And so I'm saying those things because I really believe that we all have some reckoning to do in ourselves about those. That we can't live in that flux of, did God really say all the time, if we're ever going to be fruitful for the kingdom. We can't live in that, 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 that little place of flux with, oh, well, you know, maybe I should be more concerned about what people think of me than what God thinks. No, you'll never be productive for the kingdom that way. Ever. 
And that manifests itself in how we worship. It manifests itself in how we praise and how we give thanks and, and the things that we do, not only in our private life, but also in public and, and, and when we're together corporately. It matters. And I know, you know, I stand up there, or the MC will stand up there and say, worship God in a way that you feel comfortable. Well, sure. Sure. But, you know what, that, that is more for the visitor than it is for you. Yeah. I, I think you should probably figure that out. And at some point, you stop being a visitor, and you start bringing the sacrifice of praise. And was it? And I think at some point, when we were first starting a church, or or when we were on campus, and I was starting a ministry on a campus, I'd gather everybody together, and then you know the Christians that I had, which maybe was two people, but I'd gather them all together, and I'd say, "Listen up, you guys got to worship, because you got to model how to worship, because if you don't do it, the people that are coming to visit us, and the people that are going to come and see." They don't know anything. They don't know how to worship. you got to model it. And, and you can't let the person that's standing there like a lump because they don't know how to worship influence whether you're worshiping or not. You're the influencer. And so you gather all the Christians together when you're church planting and you say, all right, everybody, game on. Sunday morning. Let's worship. Because you got people in there who don't know how to worship. you got to do it. Then they'll see how to do it. And they'll see you made a complete fool out of yourself. <laughs> and they'll feel comfortable doing the same thing. Let's get it. Good plan. Let's go. Literally, that would happen before our meetings on campuses. And say, all right, this is what we're doing. So don't forget, you guys are the models of what we're doing. Get to it. Church plant. Meeting over at the Methodist Church when we first started this church. Getting together with people. Hey, you guys got to worship. Nobody else is going to do it. Let's get it. So as a friendly reminder from Uzziah, yeah, he thought he could decide how to worship. Alright? Yeah. No. No. That was a moment of tragedy in his life. A moment of disobedience. You want to know how to worship? Read the Psalms. You don't know how to worship? Look at the New Testament. You want to know how to worship? You know, plenty of teachings on worship out there. Okay? But what I'm trying to get at is that there needs to be some kind of free expression. It needs to be some kind of a verbal, physical expression of our worship to God. And we need to model it so that others can learn and others can grow and others can enter into. So what happened to Uzziah? He got leprosy. Yep. He got leprosy. And... We've gone over leprosy a little bit, but Bible times, leprosy, that was no joke. Especially Old Testament leprosy here. That's no joke. You were basically cut off from the people. Uzziah was cut off from the people because of the leprosy. He was still the king, sort of. But he lived apart. 
And when he died, he had to be buried apart. He wasn't even allowed to be buried in the same tombs as the kings. Because of leprosy. Because you see, one day he just became strong and prideful and decided that, oh, did God really say or do we really have to worship this way or I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. He lost his success, his renown, his prosperity because of disobedience. Disobedience. And I will tell you this, and this will be kind of a parting thought here, but it's a subtle slide to failure in our lives. Subtle. Because, you know, it's like, well, I don't feel like it today. Yep, I know. Some days I don't feel like it either. That's why it's called the sacrifice of praise. Well, I don't feel like it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. But if you have a kid or a dog or you got some kind of responsibility in your life, sometimes you don't feel like it, do you? <laughs> but if you got a dog and you don't feel like taking that dog out, you know what's going to happen? He's going to poo in the house or pee in the house. Oh, I got a kid. I don't feel like changing that diaper. You'll regret it later. Yeah. And life is full of things you don't feel like doing in the moment, but you do them. Why? Because it's your duty. Why? Because you love. Why? Because it needs to get done. That's why. Is it always a joy to change a diaper? No. Is it always a joy to walk a dog? No. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. But not always. And so, we learn some lessons from pet ownership. And we start applying them to other things, more important things like spiritual things in our life that really matter and that affect their quality of life. And again, more than just looking at Uzziah, I want you to look at the principles. That this is who God is. This is how He works. And this is what He's doing in our lives. Now, considering all the grace we have, we have opportunity to change, don't we? Yep. You got opportunity to change. Tonight, as a matter of fact. And so we want to take that. I'll take him up on that. I will take God up on the opportunity to change. So let's take a moment, and I want to encourage you to just take a moment and respond to what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you tonight. Uh, like I said, I, I'm not talking about things that are uncommon. These are these is all common to each of us. And so there's there's points in our life where we may be at a point of tragedy in our life tonight, but it can change. It can change. And I pray it does. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, moments of clarity and understanding and revelation in our lives. And I pray for some of us tonight, tonight would be a moment of revelation. Where something clicks, the light goes on, and we understand something better than we ever have before. That, that something that has been shrouded to us would be clear and simple. 
because that's what revelation does. And so I pray a real simplicity over some of these thoughts, some of these concepts. I pray a simplicity and a clarity over some of these ways of seeing things, of, of seeing you, God. I pray to be brought into focus. And Lord, I would ask you that we can make some decisions tonight. That you'd help us. To make some decisions about what it means to be the go-between. What it means to, to, to just be in our role and to be doing our part in the big scheme of things of what you're doing. That that we may function in whatever role you've given us, but but really we're we're just a conduit. We're really just that 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 tool, that thing that you're using, that person that you're using to go about your will and to go about the purposes that you are doing and that you're bringing to pass in the world that we live in. Because God, I, I thank you that you want to use us. And, and if Jesus was a mediator, if John the Baptist was a go-between, if the kings of Israel were go-betweens, kings of Judah were go-between, if the apostle Paul was a go-between, I pray that we can find rest and peace in being the go-betweens you've called us to be. That we don't have to become strong. Because your strength is being perfected in our weakness. Thanks. It's not about our will, but it's about yours being done. It's about decreasing so that we can see change and growth and the power of God manifest as Jesus increases. Thanks. 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 God, I pray that we would find strength to fight the lies of the devil. I pray specifically about, did God really say? I pray, God, you teach us to fight that lie. And I pray victory over that lie in our lives. I pray victory over that lie in, in individual lives. I pray that victory to start tonight. Yeah. And I ask you, God, that we would be worshipers of you. And I pray, God, we'd bring the sacrifice of praise. God, would worship not always just because we feel like it, because it's awesome when we do, but I pray we'd worship because you're worthy. And not needing a better reason than that. So God, tonight, I, I just asked for, uh, yeah, I just asked for a, a real peace of heart and mind.
to just be who you've created us to be and fulfill the role that you've given us to fulfill. Yeah. Find life and strength and grace and health and prosperity in the role that you've given us. We give you thanks. As he sings in Jesus' name, amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of the faith community, like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.